Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for bringing us all together on this beautiful day. We ask your blessing on our efforts. Help us to open our minds and our hearts to surrender ourselves to you at least for an hour and a half uh, so that we might understand what it is that you want us to understand as individuals and what we get out of Holy Scripture. Uh, because this is a very important way that you speak to us through Scripture. So we ask your blessing on our efforts today and always. We just give you praise and thanksgiving and all thanks in Jesus' name. Today we're going to really cover sort of the heart, you might say, of Paul's letter to the Romans. And you might say, well, this is just, a, this is uh, some repetition of what uh, Galatians was all about. And you would be right. But you've got to keep in mind that there was a little bit of time difference. And the most important thing is that it was the audience who was different to Paul. Paul didn't write for people 2,000 years later. He wrote for people at the time. And he used language uh, of the time. And primarily language from the Jewish culture, which you have to kind of translate, you might say, at times. And that's what makes Romans a little difficult for people today to understand. I'm sure that when you went through uh, chapters 3, 4, and 5, uh, that you found some difficulties in understanding. And so what if we're... What we're not going to do today, as we did last week, is I'm not going to read it and then interpret it for you. We're going to take it in large uh, subjects, you might say, those that I have up there on the board. Uh, because that really is the heart of what we're talking about. And sometimes it's easier if you look at it from a slightly different point of view, which I intend to give you. Okay? Uh, so, with that, uh, first of all, is there anyone that has any burning questions that they've got to get answered right away? No one? Burning. <laughs> That's right. Why? Yeah. Well, all right. Susan's, Susan's question is that he uses a lot of questions as if he is uh, interrogating, you might say, uh, his audience. But that is a technique in Jewish writing where instead of making an imperative statement, he's asking a question so that the audience has an, a, a chance to think about it as if he was directing, directing the question to them that is the reader personally. All right? Uh, Susan is right. Paul did not know these people. And, you know, with the tone of the letter, you'd say, well, 
That's not a way to win friends and influence people. But that, again, is the style of Jewish writing. They were not concerned about feelings. What they were concerned about was getting their point across. And that's what he did. If you read other uh, Greek and Roman writings of the same period, you'll see a lot of that same thing. That they're not concerned with the everyday feely, touchy type of comments that we would put in a letter that we would write today. You know, how are you? How are you feeling? What's the weather? That kind of... No, none of that is ever put in uh, writings of that time period. Uh, you never got to that personal level. Another thing is you never got to a personal level is calling somebody by their first name. I still today cringe a little bit when somebody calls me Mel or worse, Melvin. <laughs> I thought my mother, my mother was the only one that did that, you know. <laughs> uh, that did not happen in that time period. You wouldn't walk into a group of this size and have a little badge on you or a sticker that says, oh, my name is Joe or Mary or Peter or whatever. That was just never done. Yes, Susan? Boasting? Yes, yeah. Susan is bringing up the, the point of Paul boasting. He talks about, well, I'm not going to be boasting. Well, uh, really, boasting is not much different than it is as, as it is today. What Paul is really saying is, I'm not bragging. You know, if you look at it in that context, uh, it has a little bit more uh, personal meaning. Um, even though he's showing himself as the perfect, quote-unquote, perfect example, uh, he doesn't want people to look at it in that way. So he's saying, I'm not boasting, uh, and if I did, it would be only in the fact that I am teaching and representing the crucified Christ. Okay. But, just a a thought occurred to me as I was reading He's writing to the Romans. He's a Greek. What language did he write in? Greek. So he wrote to the Romans in Greek. Yes. And they understood Greek and Roman both. Well, there there wasn't any Roman language at that time period. They all spoke Greek. That's an important point to remember. All of Paul's letters were written in Greek because that was the language of the elite. Okay. Um, even in Rome, that was the language of the educated people, the Greek language. And that came, of course, when all of Rome and that area was under domination of the Greeks after Alexander the Great. Yes, sir?
sometimes there are instances in people where it's just impossible to tell. In the first grade, we've been told that it would be impossible to figure out the name of the last supper. And in math, it refers to them as disciples. Does that mean there were more than apostles at the last supper? No, but there was many disciples in the upper room at the time of the Pentecost, first Pentecost. But, and you bring up a good point, several of the writers of the New Testament used disciples and apostles interchangeably. And that is not technically correct. There were only Somebody will challenge me right away, I'm sure. There were only 13 apostles. The original 12 plus Paul. The reason for that is that the word apostle implies, if not directly translated, means one who is directly sent by Jesus Christ. And it was only the 12 apostles that were considered, uh, the original 12, considered as the apostles sent by Jesus Christ. But Paul claims that also because in the process of his conversion, Christ appeared to him uh, and directed that he do such and such. And then when he had his revelations in Arabia, it is assumed that Christ appeared to him again in instructing him as to what to be teaching. All right. So from those two incidents, the conversion and the revelations in Arabia, Paul takes it upon himself to claim to be an apostle, and the church agrees with that. Now, you might have some other writers talk about other people, such as Timothy, Titus, um, and a few of the close associates as apostles. Technically, they were not. But on the other hand, there's other writers who will use, as I said, the word apostle and disciple interchangeably. The disciples, the disciples, no, I'm sorry, the apostles were all disciples, but the disciples weren't all apostles. Okay? Um, but when we, when we use the word disciple, what we're really talking about is a follower of Christ. And we are all disciples. Um, when you read any of the New Testament, and it talks about Christ says such and such to his disciples. It includes us. A lot of people don't think about it that way. And that's unfortunate. Because they're missing out on what Christ is really saying. But when he's talking to his disciples, he's really talking to everybody, including the apostles. Yes? You are correct. And in the, in the temple, in 
Yes. And that's true, still true today in many synagogues. Yes. Yes. Uh, remember in the Acts of the Apostles, Peter, not Paul, but Peter has a vision where that is very clearly pointed out. That there is no more uh, separation between men and women, Greek and Hebrew, or Greek and Jew, slave and free person. You know, you have... You hear this throughout Paul's letters, okay? Um, and that then is carried out, and that's, of course, one of the many things, one of the many things that has caused the separation between Christianity and Judaism. Because, as you just pointed out, uh, in the Jewish temple of the time of Christ, Men and women were separated. And in some uh, Jewish synagogues today, that is still true. Not all, but many of them. The conservative and the reform have lightened that up a lot. Okay. Uh, but also you can see in the book or the letter of Paul to the Romans how many of the things that he is advocating has caused that separation to widen. Now, let's get into some of the details here, and I'll explain that as we go along. One of the things that I would like to have you turn to is page 53. We're not, I'm not going to read all of this because we've read a lot and it's Repetition, but I want to get into uh, this whole idea of justification through faith in Christ. First of all, they are always linked. You cannot have justification without first having faith. And the word justification, in the way Paul uses it, is a little different than the way we would explain it today. Justification, well, let's back up. Faith. And I think if we go over to uh, this page 53, the writer of this book, Father Karras, has very clearly made five points that I think are worth uh, pursuing here and getting into. It says, first, the law does not bring about justification although it testifies to it. Paul will address the role of the law in Romans uh, 4 uh, through 7, really. Uh, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. All right. Now let's back up and see what that means. The law. And when it is mentioned that way, the word law should be capitalized, like I have over here. Because they are not referring to all laws. They're referring to the law, which is really the Torah, or the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Bible. 
You've got to keep that in mind. They're not talking about laws that the Romans uh, forced on these people. They're talking about the law which they worship. Now, when it, when Paul says that the law um, and the commandments are holy and righteous and good, that is true. The law was there to guide the people. Unfortunately, with any law, then or now, if we fulfill it just for the sake of fulfilling it and fulfilling an obligation, you might say, once we've done that, that's it. It cannot take us any further. Laws cannot do anything for you except tell you what to do, and if you don't do it, it can only say that you're wrong. It cannot lift you into something else. And that is the difference, the main difference between observing the law for the sake of the law rather than observing laws for the sake of being lifted higher into something else. And that can only be done through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. Yes, we have laws in our Catholic Church, but they are structured. They are more of uh, statements of faith in what we believe, in what we do and why we do it. But the most important part of our laws or our structure is to develop, is help us to develop a relationship with Christ himself, who then can lift us up into a higher level and eventually into sanctification. Justification must come before sanctification. But faith must come before justification. Howard? No, not all Catholic laws or rules are dogma. There is a distinction. Uh, there are about 460, if we break them down into all of the finer points, of uh, doctrine, okay? But they are not all dogma. Dogma is doctrine, but not all doctrine is dogma, okay? The dogma is very uh, limited, mostly having to do with Christ. But the last two, um, the last two aspects of dogma were in relationship to Mary. And that was in 1850 uh, for the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, and in 1954 for the Assumption of Mary. Okay. And those are the only two times in the last 200 years that the Catholic Church has used the uh, dogma of infallibility of the Pope. Mm-hmm. As you were talking about the laws, I was thinking about Mass. Well, you weren't paying attention to what I was saying. You were thinking about... <laughs> 
lot of people go to Mass, and that's it. Yes. Instead of going to Mass and taking it with me. That's right. You're right. Very good point. We go to Mass to worship. All right. And in the process of worshiping, which means giving our mind and our heart to God, that is what the definition of prayer is. Giving our mind and heart to God. It doesn't talk or say anything about position of the body, you know, kneeling, standing, or whatever. Uh, you know, you could be in your car waiting for a traffic light to change and praying. That is true prayer if your mind and heart is on God. But if you're in the greatest of all prayers, the Mass, and you're thinking about going to the mall later on or, you know, listening to the baseball game or can't wait till you get out to see the Giants, uh, then you might as well not be there because that's not worship. That's not prayer. So that's like the Jews following the law. For the sake of the law. And that's the point Paul uh, is making here. That the law in itself was good and holy. Unfortunately, it was not being observed for the right reason. Yes, ma'am. It doesn't seem like there's any call to make any distinction between the Ten Commandments being the law given to Moses and this expanded 613 laws of the Torah, but, I mean, did they draw any distinction between no. basic and... No. Okay. No. Uh, and that's a good point. The 613 laws came out of, but not at the time of Moses. That was over a period of time, and it was even expanded beyond that, you might say, uh, in the 4th century A.D., when the Talmud was written. And that is a common, the Talmud is divided into two parts, the Mishnah and Jamara. And one is about the commentary, uh, and the other is definitions. Okay? It's more like our, our uh, catechism, you might say. Yes. And it minces the 613 laws even further down. Uh, which of course, becomes more binding. The more laws you have, the more you have to observe those laws, the more that you you are bound or constricted in doing virtually anything. Uh, And that's where Paul gets the whole idea of freedom, is because without having to observe all those laws, particularly uh, the dietary laws and the uh, observance of so many uh, different holy days, which they don't call holy days, they call them holidays, uh, that, you know, people couldn't do a lot of things on their own. They couldn't really observe free will. And what Christ is saying is that I hold out eternal life to all of you, but I'm not going to force it on you. It's up to you to follow the examples and the structure that I've given you through the church, and when you do, the end result is eternal life. But it's up to you. And I think 
it's more meaningful if we really understand it that way. Let's continue on here. As I said here, the law does not bring about justification. It is faith that must bring about justification. And the proper way to look at that is faith is mental and heart, internal. Justification is the illustration of how we feel internally. Justification becomes then the action of putting our, our faith into action. That is justification in the way Paul is talking about it. Today, we would look at it pretty much the same way, but we would just say that because we are baptized uh, as Christians and profess to be Christians, that justification is the outward manifestation of our Catholicism. Does that make sense? Everybody kind of understand it that way? Secondly, all sinners are justified freely. Um, Now, you got to be careful with that one. All sinners. We are all sinners, okay? But justification is held out to all of us when we are baptized and accept the commitment that baptism implies. And that doesn't mean, you know, that you are free of original sin and you go home and have a big party. And that's what, unfortunately, so many people limit their understanding of baptism to. In fact, I just got an invitation the other day uh, from someone who is uh, going to have their child baptized, and then they're inviting me to the party. Well, I often wonder, do they really understand what baptism is all about? And it is so much more than just a ceremony in the church. Particularly when you are baptized as adults, or somebody who is past, you know, the the child level age. Baptism is a commitment, a commitment to the God and Father of all of us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if we don't accept it that way and think about it that way, then we've totally missed the point. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we'll all go to, you know, hell right away. Uh, But, yeah, you know, the danger is there because what we're not doing is taking the gift that God holds out to us seriously. So, baptism is a commitment just as circumcision was a commitment to God through the teachings of Moses. But those have then, uh, have now been surpassed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ And so baptism is now a commitment to God through Christ. And if we do not take that seriously and understand it, then we have missed the point. 
And we miss out on the great freedom that Jesus holds out to us. So, what Paul is really saying here is that justification is held out to all people through faith and through baptism. And once we are baptized and baptized with the intention of following Christ, then he has forgiven all of the sins that we have committed in the past. And for adults, you know, that is a tremendous gift. We never have to worry about anything in the past, provided that we are taking this idea, this uh, ceremony, this commitment seriously, and resolve never to commit those serious sins again. But even if we do, through human weakness or whatever, we have a way to then get back on the right road, which again is justification. (coughs) Excuse me. Yes. Well, because if you appreciate the baptism that you have, you will want to give the same thing to your children. All right? And, of course, that is what the sacrament of confirmation is all about. The renewing of our commitment from baptism and lifting it up, putting the gifts of the Holy Spirit that were given to us at baptism into operation. And so that's why confirmation, the sacrament of confirmation, is given to children uh, after the age of seven. So we figure that by the age of seven, they should at least have a minimal uh, understanding of right and wrong. And if they're taught properly what the sacrament of confirmation is all about, then hopefully they will begin to live with that. Does that answer your question? Okay. All right. Third, Christ's death on the cross is front and center stage in the words, by his blood, which of course comes from the consecration. Christ's shedding of his blood has brought about redemption and an image that that denotes being ransomed from the slavery and domination of sin. I want to read something that I just came across the other day, although I've had this book for years, but you know how it is. I'm a great collector of books. I can't say I've read them all. But I'm going to read this. It's a little long, but it's a very interesting story. And it illustrates the point that I'm just trying to make here. And now this is a story. This was written uh, about uh, ten years or so ago. 
And it's uh, the prologue to uh, Rediscovering Christianity by Matthew Kellogg. So as you're driving home from work um, next Monday or any day, does make a difference, after a long day, you turn on your radio and you hear a brief report about a small village in India where some people have suddenly died, strangely, of a flu that has never been uh, seen before. It's not influenza. But four people are dead, and so the Centers for Disease Control from Atlanta, Georgia, is uh, sending some doctors to India to investigate. You don't think too much about it. People die every day. But coming home from church the following Sunday, you hear another report on the radio. Only now they say it's four people who have died. But 30, not four people who have died, but 30,000 in the Black Hills of India. Whole villages have been wiped out. And experts confirm this flu is a strain that has never been seen before. By the time you get up Monday morning, it's the lead story in the newspaper. The disease is spreading. It's not just India that is affected. Now it has spread to Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, and Northern Africa. But it still seems far away. Before you know it, you're hearing their story everywhere. The media now coins it the mystery flu. The president has announced that he and his family are praying for the victims of uh, their families and are hoping for the situation to be resolved quickly. Yeah, that's the president. He's not doing anything except praying. But everywhere, everyone is wondering how we are ever going to contain it. And that's when the president of France makes an announcement that shocks Europe. He is closing the French borders. No one can enter the country. And that's why that night you're watching a little bit of CNN before going to bed. Your jaw hits your chest. When a weeping woman's words are translated into English from a French news program, there's a man lying in a hospital in Paris, dying of the mystery flu. It has now come to Europe. Panic strikes. As best you can tell, after contracting the disease, you have it for a week before you can even know it. Then you have four days of unbelievable symptoms, and then you die. The British close their borders, but it's too late. The disease breaks out in Southampton, Liverpool, and London. And on Tuesday morning, the President of the United States makes the following announcement. Due to a national security risk, all flights to and from the United States have been canceled. If your loved ones are overseas, I'm sorry. They cannot come home until we find a cure for this horrific uh, disease. Within four days... America is plunged into an unbelievable fear and are wondering, what if it comes to this country? Preachers on television are saying it is the scourge of God. Then on Tuesday night, you're at church for Bible study when somebody runs in from the parking lot and yells, turn on your radio! And while everyone listens to a small radio, the announcement is made. Two women are lying in a hospital in New York City, dying of the mystery flu. It has come to the America. 
Within hours, the disease develops the country, envelops the country, sorry. People are working around the clock, trying to find an antidote, but nothing is working. The disease breaks out in California, naturally, California, (laughs) Oregon, Arizona, Florida, Massachusetts. It's as though it's sweeping in from border to border. Then suddenly the news comes out. The code has been broken. A cure has been found. A vaccine can be made, but it's going to take the blood of someone who, has, who hasn't been infected. So, you and I are asked to do just one thing. Go to the nearest hospital and have your blood tested. When we hear the sirens go off in our neighborhood, we are to make our way quickly, quietly, and safely to the hospital. Sure enough. By the time you and your family get to the hospital, it's late Friday night. There are long lines of people in a constant rush of doctors and nurses taking blood and putting labels on it. Finally, it is your turn. You go first, then your spouse and children follow. And once the doctors have taken your blood, they say to you, wait here in the parking lot for your name to be called. You stand around with your family and neighbors, scared, waiting, wondering, wondering quietly to yourself, what on earth is going on here? Is this the end of the world? How did it ever come to this? Nobody seems to have had their name called. The doctors just keep taking people's blood. But then, suddenly, a young man comes running out (coughs) of the hospital screaming, He's yelling a name and wavering a clipboard. You don't hear the name at first. What's he saying, someone asked. The young man screams the name again. And he and a team of medical staff in in your direction come running in your direction. But again, you cannot hear him. But then your son tugs at your jacket and says, Daddy, that's me. That's my name they're calling. And you know it. They have grabbed your boy. Wait a minute, hold on, you say, running after them. That's my son. It's okay, they replied. We think he has the right blood. We just need to check one more time to make sure he doesn't have the disease. Five minutes later, they come out, the doctors and nurses, crying and hugging each other. Some of them are even laughing. It's just the first time uh, you have seen anybody laugh in a week. An old doctor walks up to you and uh, you and your spouse and says, Thank you. Your son's blood is perfect. It's clean. It's pure. It doesn't have the disease. And we can use it to make the vaccine. As the news spreads across the parking lot, people scream and pray and laugh and cry. You can hear the crowds erupting in the background as the gray-haired doctor pulls you and your spouse aside to say, I need to talk to you. We didn't realize that the donor would be a minor, and we, we need you to sign a consent form. The doctor presents the form, and you quickly begin to sign it, but then your eye catches something. The box for the number of pints of blood 
to be taken is empty. How many pints, you ask? That is when the old doctor's smile fades. And he says, we had no idea it would be a child. We weren't prepared for that. You ask him again, how many pints? The old doctor looks away and says regretfully, we are going to need it all. But I, I, I don't understand. What do you mean you need it all? He's my only son. The doctors grab you by the shoulders, pull you close, look you straight in the eye and says, we are talking about the whole world here. Do you understand? The whole world. Please, sign the form. We need to hurry. But can't you give him a transfusion? We asked. If we had clean blood, we could. And we would. But don't worry. Please, will you sign the form? What would you do? In numb silence, you sign the form because you know that it's the only thing to do. Then the doctors say to you, would you like to have a moment with your son before we get started? Could you walk into the hospital room where your son sits on a table saying, Daddy, Mommy, what's going on? Could you tell your son you love him? And when the doctors and nurses come back in and say, I'm sorry, we've got to get started now. People all over the world are dying. Could you leave? Could you walk out while your son is crying out to you, Mom, Dad, what's going on? Where are we going? Why are you leaving? Why have you abandoned me? The following week, they hold a ceremony to honor your son for his phenomenal contribution to humanity. But some people sleep through it. Others don't even bother to come because they have better things to do. And some people come with a pretentious smile and pretend to care, while others sit around and say, this is boring. Wouldn't you want to stand up and say, excuse me, I'm not sure if you are aware of it or not, but the amazing life you have, my son died so that you could have that life. My son died so that you could live. He died for you. Does it, does it mean nothing to you? Perhaps that is what God wants to say to each of us. Can you imagine that really the disease that is mentioned here is sin? And the only way that sin could be repaid or done away with, at least temporarily, is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As you can tell, that kind of broke me up a little uh, just reading that. Well, when I first read it just the other day, I thought, that's a perfect example 
of explaining the meaning of the death and resurrection of Christ. It was necessary that Christ be given to us the perfect and divine human being who was also God to represent all mankind to take upon his back the sins of all mankind and take them to the cross where he then offers them through his body back to the Father in reparation and expiation of all sin. I don't I don't really see how you could explain it any better than that illustration of that story. Howard? Well, I was thinking that Abraham would do the same thing. God says, I want you to uh, sacrifice your only son, the one you love. And then God stopped him. But God gave him the only son that he loved to sacrifice him uh, the whole way through, yes. Yes. Um, but who of us could really do the same thing? We are not being asked to. All we are being asked to is to take care of ourselves so that we don't add to the burden of that crucifixion to the burden of that sin by more. And what Christ is saying and what Paul is telling us through his wordy message is that, yeah, all mankind has sinned, but through our baptism we have been forgiven. And through the church we are given a way to repeat that being forgiven as long as we are sincere and hope and pray that we don't continue it. So this third item here that little story I think really covers that subject. Christ's death on the cross is front and center stage in the words by his blood. Christ's shedding of his blood, just as the little boy in the story, brought about redemption, salvation for all mankind. An image that denotes being ransomed from the slavery and domination of sin. I don't see how any other story could have illustrated it any better. Expiation. This is one of those words that we hear and really don't quite understand. God has set forth Jesus Christ on the cross as the new expiatory uh, sacrifice that takes away sin through the shedding of his blood. The whole idea of a perfect offering, a divinely perfect offering being made by Christ himself is what has caused our sin to be uh, wiped away. 
that's kind of what expiatory means. To be wiped away and the slate cleared. That gives us then the door to justification. The whole idea of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament background seems to be in Exodus 25.17. You shall then make an expiatory cover. The uh, Leviticus uh, says, Then he, Aaron, shall slaughter the people's sin offering goat and bring its blood inside the veil. He shall do with it as he did with the bullock's blood, sprinkling it on the expiatory and before it. Thus, he shall make atonement for the sanctuary because of all the sinful defilements and faults of the Israelites. Remember, we often hear the term scapegoat. That comes from the custom where once a year the sins of mankind were written out, the sins of mankind in the Jewish culture, of course, were written out on little pieces of parchment, and they were attached then to a goat by a pin in some way, and the goat then was forced out into the desert to be consumed by wild animals, all right? And that was then the scapegoat, where the sins of mankind that were attached to that goat would be forgiven. That was part of their culture. All of those kinds of things, you might say, were good and holy up to a point, as long as they were for the intention of honoring and glorifying God as they knew it. But once Christ came, lived, taught, died, and rose again, then all of those other things were no longer necessary. And even and the Jewish people still haven't caught on to this. The whole idea of animal sacrifice died out with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because in the Jewish culture, the lamb that was slain, or lamb or goat, that was slain and used in the uh, Seder service, that is the Passover meal, was the offering that was given back to God through the consumption of that by the people. Well, once Christ gave his divine body and blood for the sins of all mankind, that giving of the lamb was then no longer necessary nor acceptable to the Father. That is why the life, death, and resurrection and the offering of Christ's body in that event is so important. And whenever we receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ, we are then partaking of that event in itself. How many of you really think about that when you receive the body and blood of Christ in Mass? Yes, Rita? 
Well, that's a good point. The reader asked, if the Jewish people didn't believe in Christ, why would they stop the animal sacrifice? There's there's a double reason, you might say. The you know, This was King David who made this rule, not Moses, that sacrifice could only be done in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Nowhere else. Up to that point in time, it could be done at other places. But David was the one that brought it together and made Jerusalem the center of the Jewish culture and the faith. All right. Once the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, never to be rebuilt, there was no place to hold that sacrifice. And therefore, it died out. But the real reason was it was no longer necessary and acceptable. The last item, uh, fifth here on page 53, four times in this passage, the word faith or to believe occurs. Justification, redemption, expiation are not forced upon mankind. I've changed that myself. Uh, they have to respond in faith to God who has done these things for them through Jesus Christ. Again, your faith should not just be an outward action. It is something that should be taken into consideration and be part of your life so that everything that you do reflects your belief. And so people can see it. Well, in proper times and in proper ways and places uh, when you come together. Uh, again, I asked this once before, how many of you uh, bow your head and say uh, a prayer of thanksgiving when you're in a restaurant? So many people are kind of embarrassed to do that. I see nothing wrong with it. And I've seen waiters uh, or waitresses who are approaching a table where people are praying, and they will step back and wait. Because they're really honoring what you're doing. And of course, that's just a minor thing. Uh, watching your language is so important to reflect your relationship with Christ. And a lot of people don't think about that. I used to... Uh, work with a, a fellow who uh, used the most colorful language I think I ever heard. And he would use it, you know, regardless who, who was around. And I liked the young man. Well, we were both young at the time. <laughs> uh, you know, because he worked for me, uh, and I had to deal with him. So one time I took him aside. And I said, why do you talk like that? Well, what do you mean, what do I talk like? And I said, I gave him some examples. And he said, well, what's wrong with that? I said, it's offensive to all of us. Uh, 
And so I went, you know, I didn't go into a lot of detail, but I said, really, it's not only offensive to us, but it's demeaning to yourself when you don't realize it. You know, that kind of hit home. He sort of was solemn the rest of the day. I never heard those words since after that. You know. So, it can become a habit that you're not even aware of. So it behooves all of us to do a little inventory, you might say, of how do we reflect our Catholicism, our belief in Christ, our relationship with Christ to other people. Because that's the best way to evangelize. That is the best way to get people to see that we are Catholic Christians. Is by our example. You don't have to do a lot of preaching. You don't have to go around with one of those, what they call sandwich boards, you know, and, uh, and, you know, say that the world's coming to an end because, because, because. No, no. It's just the idea of how you act and how you speak that can reflect your way of living and your relationship with Christ. That's what it's all about. Any questions on that subject? I hope all of you will take uh, some time because if you go through this course here and study Paul's letters to the Galatians and the Romans, and it not affect you in some way, then either you've done something wrong or I've done something wrong. And you've missed the point. So I would challenge you to spend a little time on thinking about where do you stand with your lifestyle and how does it reflect your relationship with Christ. Let's go on to chapter 4. Chapter 4 is all about how Abraham fits into all of this. Uh, We have to back up a little bit here and talk about Abraham, whose name was Abram and whose wife's name was Sarai. But in the process of God meeting with Abraham, you know, the story is three men came uh, near the camp where Abraham and his family were camped out. They were all nomads, you might say. They moved from place to place. Uh, wherever they could find green pastures for their flock. Their flock was their source of livelihood, uh, both as food and in selling parts of uh, the flock through the milk, the, the uh, fur, the meat, and so forth. Uh, that was their income. So they needed to move from place to place in order to pasture their flocks. So they were nomads. Abraham came from an area in somewheres around Iran and Iraq, in that land, it was called the land of Ur, U-R. And during one of these 
encampments, you might say, three men came by uh, as if they were passing through. And Abraham, of course, ran out and tried to persuade them to stop because any time strangers would come by, uh, the whole idea of hospitality was very important to both sides, you might say. To the passers-by, they came in order to refresh themselves, particularly with water and food and so forth. And for the people who were encamped there, they would welcome strangers because they would get news from different areas and so forth. So it was a way of helping each other. So in the process, Abraham uh, provides a meal for these three strangers. And as they were passing by or going on or making at least uh, the gesture of moving on, uh, they wanted to thank his wife. Abraham's wife, Sarai. And so Sarai comes out and so forth. And then they said, well, where is your son? And they said, well, we have no son here, and we've been praying to the Lord for it. And so the stranger said, well, in a year from now, you will have a son. I'm sort of going through this rather quickly because of the point I'm trying to make here. The whole idea here is the promise that Abraham would have a son even though he and his wife were quite elderly in age. All right. And as a way of indicating that, because obviously, um, and you know, the little story is that Sarai is sort of in the tent and she hears this and she says, oh yeah, at my age, I'm going to have a child. And also she starts to laugh. And the strangers hear the laugh, of course. And uh, they indicate that they will have a child. And as a sign of that, they change the names. Which, in that culture, was a very important point. When a name was changed, it meant that there was something great going to be happening in their life or they were going to be used by God in a special way. So, Abraham and his wife take this upon themselves. And then, there is a relationship that is built up. And that relationship uh, begins with God, in some way, inferring or telling Abraham that he and his family are to move to a land that they will be directed to. So Abraham, who accepts this and believes it, because it comes from the God, the God that he has sort of in his mind developed because he is worshiping the one true God, which was credited to him as a belief of importance. And apparently, uh, because most of these nomads would either have no belief or they would worship the sun and the moon and the stars and so forth, apparently Abraham was a rare individual who believed in a one true God who created 
all of these things. So, they were asked to move to a land they knew not. But, out of obedience, they did so. Now, Abraham is getting a little anxious because he was told he was going to have a descendant and he's not getting any younger. And so, uh, he takes matters into his own hands and by culture, he has relationships with Sarai's maid, Hagar. The child born from that, Ishmael, was considered a no-no because he was born not by the efforts of God, but by Abraham taking matters into his own hands, so to speak. Okay. Later on, he has a child through Sarai, whose name now has been changed to Sarah, and Abram, Abram's wife, her name has been changed to Abraham. He finally gets a child of his own through his lawful wife, Sarah, who is now Isaac. Later on, the whole idea of Ishmael is considered the son of the bondwoman or the slave and is not accepted. Isaac, the son of the free woman, Sarah, is the chosen one. Now, when Paul talks about descendant in the singular, he's not talking about Isaac or Ishmael for that matter. He's talking about the eventual coming down through the history and the line of all of the Jewish people to the time of Christ. He's making a real point that the real descendant singular of Abraham is Jesus Christ. And in a way, he's right. The whole idea of God's plan of salvation begins or is implemented, you might say, in mankind through Abraham and the Jewish people and all of the culture that was built up comes through Abraham. But Abraham lived long before the law, with a capital L, was established. But he did several things based solely on his faith in God, the one true God who created all things. All right? He moved from the land of war to Palestine. All right? He had a child, first by his own efforts, which was not accepted, but eventually a child of the promise, the promise that the three men made uh, long before that. And then he was asked to take that child and slaughter it and offer it back to God. And though he must have felt like the man in the story here, he did so. But at the last minute, he was prevented from following through. It was a test of Abraham to show not only him, himself, 
but to show his people, the Jewish people that came from that family, that God follows through with his promises. And that by faith in those promises, we will survive and eventually be restored to eternal life. The reason for all of God's plan of salvation is to counter the, uh, the sin of all mankind. And that's referenced all the way back in the book of Genesis. When Adam and Eve sin, and they are confronted as to why they sin, and of course, uh, Adam says, well, my wife made me do it. God condemns the serpent and says that a child will, or a, a woman actually, will come forth and her child will crush the serpent's head and so forth. Those are all metaphors for Mary and Jesus and the whole idea of <clears throat> salvation being given to all mankind through this Jewish person that will come much later. So, you see, Abraham was in existence as the father of the Jewish family, the Jewish culture and faith, but he knew nothing about the law. That was not brought into the culture for almost 500 years later at the time of Moses. But Paul is holding out this idea of Abraham and his wife being favored by God simply because of their faith. And it was not the law that accomplished the faith. It was God himself who drew faith out of Abraham and his descendants, his family, and developed the whole Jewish race. But unfortunately, as time went on, 2,000 years, this law, which came into existence, as I said, beginning with the Ten Commandments about 500 years after Abraham, grew to such importance that people began to worship the law and forgot about God. And if we do that, then just the worshiping of the law is not going to do us any good. And that's true today. As Dick pointed out earlier, if we go to Mass simply to fulfill an obligation, we've completed the obligation, but we haven't honored God. And that is where we come in today kind of doing the same things. And God is going to say, fine, you did your uh, duty, you fulfilled the obligation, but that's where it ended. I'm not going to be honored, and I'm not going to give you any blessings for that. Howard? Yeah. That's right. That's what most people believe, that he was not circumcised. That was a something that came along much later. Yeah. See, the Egyptians did. 
the Egyptians circumcised their males. And that was more understood at that time. But again, the whole story of Abraham in all of the book of Genesis wasn't written until the 5th century B.C. That's a thousand years after Moses and 1,500 years after Abraham. So, who knows? The story in itself is story. It's not history. But it, it is... I think, in a way, it's an inspired story, and therefore we have to be, we have to believe the basics, but not all the details. I'd like to draw attention to a book that is on the bestseller list right now. I'm not selling books, by the way. <laughs> it's called Jesus on Trial. I highly recommend it, with one caveat. It is written from a fundamentalist Protestant point of view. But the objections that I have are minor. I only read about halfway through yet. But it is an excellent book, and I highly recommend it. It is easy to read, and it is about, uh, all of you know who Rush Limbaugh is. This is this is by his brother, okay, who was an atheist for many years and decided that he was pestered too often about his atheism and therefore he was out to prove that Christianity was wrong. And in the process, he has become a very devout Christian, highly recommending and promoting the Bible. It is an excellent book because it explains a great deal about the finer points of the Bible in layman's language. Not, you know, heavy theo- uh, theological language or legal language, but in everyday language. And so I highly recommend it, provided you keep in mind that this is written from a fundamentalist Protestant point of view, which is not wrong. It's just that, for example, there is no discussion of the Eucharist in here. There is no discussion of uh, the Sacrament of Reconciliation in here. (coughs) It's not that it's put down. It's just there's nothing about it. And, of course, those are two of the finest points of Christian or Catholicism. If you don't have that, what have you got? You see? So keep that in mind, but at the same time, don't throw, you know, the baby out with the bathwater. Wow. This is Matthew Kelly. Yeah, yeah. 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 And that's an excellent book also as well. Um, but again, I highly recommend this. It is on the bestseller list. You can get it on Amazon for about uh, $17. All right. Now, 
we have just a short time, but faith, hope, and love. I think in a way we've covered all of that, uh, not as formally as I would have liked, but I think you get the point. And as we go into chapters, uh, <coughs> the next few chapters, it illustrates through the idea of Christian life, uh, the whole idea of putting our faith into action and being able to show it. And out comes faith, hope, and love. And Paul says in Corinthians chapter 13 that the three greatest virtues are faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of those is love. Because without sharing our faith and our justification, it dies. We cannot bottle up love. It has to be shared. And if we don't, then it bottles us up as well. That's true. Karen makes a point that if your faith in Christ is authentic and true, justification will automatically come about. But many people say, I am a Christian and I have this faith in Christ, but they do nothing about it. And that tells me that your faith is not real. Okay? Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together to more thoroughly explore the meaning of faith and justification. Help us now to search our minds and our hearts to see where we stand with you on these subjects. Where are we strong and where are we weak in both of them? And help us then to stretch our minds and our hearts, open them so that you can come in and truly enlighten us all. So we thank you for this time together. We ask your blessing on our efforts as we strive to be stronger and more devout Catholics. So give us the courage, the strength, the wisdom to do so. We thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.